This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching through Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 through 28, and the sermon title is Leviathan, Daniel, and Humble Disobedience. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Oh God of heaven, we come before you this morning. We believe in you, we trust you, we know that you are the God of all creation, the one in whom and through whom all things exist. And we are humbled to come before your presence today and to hear your words. And I pray they would be clear and that you would be exalted in them and that our hearts would find their allegiance to you and nothing else. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, For those of you who are new here, my name is Isaac. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have been going through the book of Daniel. And uh, we're going to continue that today. We're going to finish up chapter 6. I wanted to give a little bit of a um, brief introduction to this before we get into it. So if you guys remember a few weeks ago, we preached on um, the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about Christian suffering. And that's very much so a similar story to what we find here in Daniel. There's a few differences, of course, but um, main difference being that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down before a statue. And they did not. So they, they disobeyed a positive command to bow down before a statue. This command that Daniel disobeyed was kind of the opposite. Daniel was commanded not to pray to his God, and he disobeyed that and continued to worship and pray to his God. So there's a few differences there, but, but uh, I didn't want to take this sermon in the same direction that we took that one. Um, I thought I would cover something that's different that we've brought up, hinted at a little bit, But I think it would be very good of us to take the sermon in this direction. Still, of course, based on the text, but just a different application of it. And that would be uh, talking about disobedience to the government, uh, particularly in regards to our faith. And uh, we're still going to cover the entire story and touch on all those details. But um, if if the title is on the screen, I don't know if it is yet, but I've titled the sermon... Leviathan, Daniel, and humble disobedience. Leviathan, Daniel, and humble disobedience. And I'm going to tell you what the main point of this is right up front. And it's, it's a directly from Scripture. It comes from Acts chapter 5, verse 29. And it says, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. So, without further ado, let me uh, we'll get right into it. So, uh, In 1651, during the English Civil War, there's a man by the name of Thomas Hobbes, and he wrote a book called Leviathan. There's a longer title to it, but Leviathan is the the shorthand for it, which argued for something called the divine right of kings. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the divine right of kings before. Yeah, so it's a very scary idea. Basically, it's the idea that the king has absolute authority from God himself. So anything the king commands, if you disobey it, you're disobeying God directly. And any of us who know our Bibles know that that is a very dangerous thought. Of course, the scriptures tell us to obey our authorities, right? And we, we should. Romans 13 is very clear on that, right? We're supposed to respect our government and love our government. Jesus certainly did. But when it comes down to obeying our God or obeying the government when they conflict, as Christians, we must always choose to obey God rather than man. And that is exactly what we see Daniel do in this passage. To, uh, but the reason on the sermon title why it says Leviathan is because of that book. Uh, I, I think it's very, very fitting title for such a monstrous and evil idea that it would be called, the book would be called Leviathan. And, th- and this is coming from a guy who is supporting this idea, which is a little bit ironic, if you ask me. 
But to give us some context to where it kind of lines up with, with Scripture and how we, how we see this working out in Christian history, um, approximately 500 years after the life of Daniel, the Roman Empire had just gained prominence over the world. And there was a saying that embodied the spirit of the empire, and it was uh, Kaiser Curios in Greek, which means Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And that wasn't just a cutesy little saying that they had on their coins. That was a deeply religious belief that they held, that Caesar was God overall. Caesar was, of course, one of many gods, but he was the God-man to them. So it's certainly not a coincidence that the, the Christian phrase was Christos Kyrios, Christ is Lord, Christ is Lord direct opposition to the religious claim of Rome that, that Caesar himself, or the government, had absolute authority. God himself, the God-man, the one true God-man, Jesus Christ, has absolute authority over all things. He is the Lord of all, no one else. It is him. And that is vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is ruling and reigning all creation right now and it is being put under his feet until he comes back. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks as we get into Daniel 7. But uh, for now, we'll, we'll suffice to say, to say that. But I want to talk about humble disobedience because this is what we see with Daniel. We don't see a rebellious spirit within Daniel. He's not an arrogant anarchist who's just trying to have his own way and he just doesn't like authority. Daniel very clearly respects authority, very clearly respected governmental authority. All the kings that he was a part of their lives, they all loved him and put them like put Daniel like second place in the kingdom because they trusted and respected him so much. You don't get that if you're an anarchist. Like, kings don't like anarchists. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> they don't. <clears throat> and Daniel was a humble man, but the, the thing was that marked him from everyone else was his integrity and his love for his one true God, which caused him to love authority and caused him to love the government. Even these pagan kings, who were the ones who captured his people from Israel, he still respected them. So we'll get into all that. But, but, of course, we're talking about humble disobedience because here in this passage, he disobeys. And I think as Christians, we, we should automatically know it is right to disobey certain commands from man. It is never right to disobey God, ever. It's a very simple truth. I think, I think our children would probably understand that. But, but I think sometimes we miss how important that is. So I want to talk about something that's a little bit ironic, too, with when it comes to this. Christianity is a revolution in many ways. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, was the revolutionary. And I know, you know, it's kind of like buzz language, you know, that we don't always use that in church, right? Um, but that is very much so what he was doing. The first Adam caused the human race to fall into sin. And the second Adam, the new man, the, the man of new creation, comes in to redeem the world, to change the world, to start humanity 2.0, and to redeem creation. And as Christians, as people who have the Holy Spirit of God in them, we are new creations. We're a new people. We're a new people. We're a kingdom of priests to God. That's what we are. We're new. And while we are here, we are here to bring this gospel of redemption, this news of redemption to the world and live it out. We're not supposed to be like the world because we're new people. We're a new kingdom. We're a foreign kingdom invading this world. We don't do that with violence, though. We don't do that with, an, with a rebellious spirit. We do that with a spirit of love and humility, with, with moral integrity, and most of all, declaring the lordship of Jesus because of what he has done for us on the cross through his death and resurrection. 
So in reality, governments shouldn't hate us because Christians teach to respect authority. But they do hate us because they hate Jesus. And they hate the idea that there is a Lord above them. And ultimately, that's where all people apart from God are. They hate the idea that there is a God who is Lord over their life. You don't invite him to be Lord over your life. He is Lord over your life. The question is, will you bow to him now while it's your choice? Or will you bow to him at the end when it's too late? That's the question. So let's look in our text here, having all of that as our background for getting into it. Let's look at Daniel's humble disobedience in verse 10. Look with me in the passage here. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. So we're just going to take this section, and we're going to parse it out, and then we're going to get into the rest of it. Um, but this is, this is absolutely essential for understanding Daniel's character through the rest of this story, through the lion's den and everything. So first of all, we see his obedience to God. His obedience to God. So look at the first part of verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house. So his first response when he hears this decree that if he continues to worship his God, he will be thrown into the den of lions, his first response is to go to God. That's his first response. That's horrible news to hear. You can imagine all of the Jews in the land being terrified at this command because they are pretty much the only religion that said there's only one God and he's the only one to be worshipped. All the other religions were, were polytheist, polytheistic and they worshipped many gods and they had no problem, problem adding one more to the list or not worshipping the other ones for a few days just to worship the king. That wasn't an issue for them. But for, for those who followed, who had the faith of Abraham... They could not do that. And Daniel, of course, is one of them. So he could have done a lot of things. He, he had power. He had authority. He could have tried to start a rebellion. He could have gone and cowered with his other Jewish friends. But that's not at all what he does. He goes immediately to his God. Immediately to his God. So when some horrible news comes to us about something that's happened in our world, is that our first response? Is our first response to go to God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who holds all things in his hands, where nothing can happen apart from him doing it or allowing it? Do we go to him? We should. We should not cower in fear. We should not complain there's times to take action. Certainly, we need to be involved in this world. God created us to be involved in this world. But our first response should be to seek God first. And he will work out the details. He will. But notice the other part of this verse. It says that he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So, the reason why he responded this way is not because some bad thing happened. It's because worship of his God was built into his life already when things were good. See, we have this idea as Christians that if we, right now when it's easy, it's, it's, it's really it's pretty natural to not seek God as desperately because we don't see the need for it. But when things get hard, we think, oh, you know, if persecution comes, then, yeah, I'll be really serious about this whole Christianity thing. But that, that couldn't be further from the truth. If, if you aren't obeying and loving and worshiping, worshiping him now when things are easy, what makes you think you're going to do it when it's hard? 
What makes you think when your life could be threatened for worshiping Jesus Christ that you're just going to be more serious about your faith? I mean, I pray that you would, and maybe the Spirit will do a work. But I think for a lot of people, it's going to expose their lack of faith. And that's, that's a scary thought, and I pray that that would not be any of us here. But Scripture does have a category for people who are just along for the ride until things get hard. And really, we have not seen it get hard here. So search your hearts. Search your hearts. Search the Scriptures. Compare yourself to the words of God and see if there is an evil, unbelieving heart in you. I pray that there is not. But the way we're to be ready for these situations is by regularly spending time with God and worshiping Him and loving Him. Part of that is going to be being part of His people. Being part of a community of believers. Because we don't... God didn't call... God didn't create the church so that there would be a bunch of lone wolf Christians out there. That is not His ideal. Obviously, there are situations where that happens. But that is not the ideal, and that is generally not right. We need one another. The church is a... It means a called-out assembly. Assembly, a gathered people. We need one another. If we are a kingdom, if we are the people of God, we're not going to succeed in our mission if we don't cooperate with one another and love one another and fellowship with one another. But it starts with God. It starts with communing with God. So those, those are just some aspects of him obeying God, and you see how that is very much so the framework of his life. But then we see his disobedience, but not to God. Disobedience to man. Disobedience to man. So look at what this verse says overall. So notice that his first response is to go to seek God as he had done previously. So when this rule comes along that says he's not supposed to do this anymore, he doesn't do anything different. He just continues about his day, trusting in his God, continuing to worship his God, unfazed by the command of the government, unfazed by it. And I think there's something for us to learn there. It's when something like this happens, we need to remember that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. He's the unchangeable God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because of that, he deserves unchanging worship. He deserves unchanging worship from his people. Because he never changes. We don't worship when it's convenient for us to worship him. We don't worship him because we feel like worshiping him. We worship him because he is God and he is worthy of worship, whether we feel like it or it's easy or not. That's who he is. That's his glory. He's incredible. He is, he is the God of all creation. And we have the arrogance. We have the arrogance to say in our hearts that we don't really feel like worshiping him today. And for, for those of us who are Christians, those of us who know what he's done for us through Christ to redeem us from sin, to forgive, forgive us of all of our sins, past, present, and future in Christ, it's like, what a shame. But no, but know this. If that is you and, and you feel the Spirit convicting you of that, know that he loves you and he's convicting you because he is your father. And he loves you. And he wants to change you. So don't wallow in despair. Embrace what Jesus has done for you and walk forward in the power of the Spirit. But I think overall, there's one key thing that is very much so tied to the verse I read at the beginning we must obey God rather than men that is really the underlying factor behind Daniel's heart here. And it has to do with fear. Daniel was a fearful man. 
but he did not fear humans. He feared God. He feared God more than people. Listen to this verse. This is what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Should be on the screen. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? That's God. That's Jesus himself, as he will go on to talk about how he is the judge of all the earth. So don't fear people. Don't fear the government. Don't fear, and, and I'll apply this to things that are less serious than a, than, than a government uh, rule, but don't fear people more than you fear God. In fact, don't fear people at all because God is the one that made them. And yeah, they might be able to kill you, but they, they can't do anything about your soul being with God afterwards. And they can't do anything to change the fact that when Jesus comes back, he will raise his people from the dead and raise creation from the dead. They can't do anything to touch that. Your inheritance is unfading and unshakable, kept in heaven for us. It cannot be changed. So do not fear what this world has to say and the threats of others. Fear God. And if he is your father, fear him as a father, not as a judge, because he has judged Christ on your behalf. But if you are not in Christ, fear him as a judge. Because you're still in your sins and you need Christ to take that for you. And I, I do, again, to take, to, to take this a different route in application, here in our country, we are, we are very blessed. And this message could feel a little out of place for some of us who are looking at the world, in, in, at least in our context, and thinking, well, it's not really that bad. Like, we don't really have persecution here. People mock us sometimes. And it's certainly going in a bad direction, but we're not there yet. And I'm not going to be a doom and gloom prophet that says we're going to be, here to, we're going to be there tomorrow. Okay, I don't know. The Lord could send revival here, and I pray that he will. But what I do know is there are brothers and sisters all throughout the world who face this. And not only that, but we face this on a personal level when it comes to cultural pressure and peer pressure. And this is what I mean. I know, I know that there are many Christians, maybe even some in this room, who are more concerned that the world thinks you're nice than that you please God. More concerned that the world thinks that you're a good person and they like your morality and they like the fact that you're inclusive and acceptive of everyone rather than your boldness to say what God has said. Now certainly we need to do this in, an, in a spirit and attitude of love and kindness as that of Christ, but, but where is your authority lying? Where is, where is your authority? Is it the word of God and what God has said or do you care more about pleasing people and Christianity is a convenient way to do some of that sometimes? Search your heart. I don't know. And I pray that that is none of you here. But I know there are professing Christians in the world who are like that. And that's a very scary place to be. Search your heart. Where, where's the root? Is the root, I love God and I want, I want his will to be done and I am basing my life on his word? Or do you base your life off of what the world and the culture has said, and you care more about that. If that is you, you need to repent. You need to repent. And if that's not you, we need to lovingly and graciously disciple those who that is the case for. And we need to guard ourselves and think through, all right, everything I believe, is it really based off of what the Word of God has said? There's certainly many things that that the Bible isn't clear about or doesn't touch on at all. But all of the major important things, especially moral issues, the scriptures are abundantly clear on, and you have to bend over backwards to get around it. And you can just <clears throat> read the Bible at face value in prayer, and, and you will come to the right conclusion on those major issues if you believe what you read. So I pray that that is what you do, and that you fear God more than man, as Daniel did. 
And that takes us right down to this last observation here as we continue to, to work our way to the end of this passage. Is Daniel's humility. So he has humble disobedience to man. That's why I said humble disobedience, not just disobedience. It's humble. It's not arrogant. The way he disobeys the king here is in the most loving way you can possibly disobey a king. Look at verse 21. So the king comes to the the entrance of the den, and he's asking Daniel, are you alive? Did God save you? And Daniel says, O king, live forever. I don't know about you, but if a king threw me in a lion's den, I don't know that that would be my first response. O king, live forever. Like, man... I don't know what the Lord was doing in Daniel's heart while he was in the lion's den, but, but he did a mighty work. And, and that is how we are to be to those who persecute us. We're to love those who curse us and hate us and mock us. That's how we change the world. And it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense apart from God. Because the way up is down when it comes to Christianity. The way up is down. The way you are exalted is through humility. That's the way it works. That's exactly the way Christ was exalted. That's how he was enthroned as king. He was humiliated through death on a cross. He was crowned with a crown of thorns, robe of purple, and that's how he was exalted as king, through humility. And that is exactly how this world is going to be changed. Now, it won't be perfect until Christ comes back, obviously, but we are still to work in this world and to bring the gospel to the the ends of the earth and to relieve the curse as much as we can until Christ comes back and does that perfectly and permanently. So as Christians, we're supposed to be as bold as lions, but humble servants, even towards our enemies. And that will conquer nations. That will conquer nations for Christ, is the humility of Christ, loving others, even especially when they hate you and mock you. For the sake of Christ, and we need to give Christ the glory for that. As Daniel did, he gave his God glory, which we know through the New Testament is Christ, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So let's, uh, let's now move on to the rest of this passage here. And these sections aren't going to take as long. I know you're thinking like, wow, he spent all that time in verse 10. And now if there's like this entire passage, he's going to do the same thing for the rest. No, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> like I said, if I wanted to take it more of the route of Christian suffering, we maybe would have emphasized it more on this passage. But we did do that um, a few weeks ago. And, if, and I, as I was reading through this, um, I just thought like this, this, this would be very good for our church to, to dig into in this direction. So that's what we're doing. So we talked about Daniel's humble disobedience, and so now let's look at Leviathan's scheme. Leviathan's scheme. So remember, Leviathan here, I'm using it as a, as a, uh, a word to replace like evil governments or ultimately spiritual darkness, which is behind all evil, evil governments we'll talk about that in a minute so let's look at the first part here the government officials conspired against daniel due to jealousy so in verse 11 we see then these men came by agreement and found daniel making petition and plea before his god and then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction O king did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you O king shall be cast into the den of lions they they're the ones that came up with this scheme to begin with. And they did it because of jealousy. They didn't do it because Daniel was a bad leader. He was an incredible leader. He, the king, if you read um, the first couple verses in chapter 6, when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, you would have seen that the king, Darius, intended to put Daniel over the whole kingdom. That means he would have been in like second in command over everything, just under the king himself over all the other officers. And they were jealous of this. They were envious of his position. But they were, they were envious, but he was such a good leader. He was, he was so good because of God, because of what God had done in his life. 
And I want to point this out because later we're going to see the result of their sin here. It not only resulted in their death, but the death of their family. So what I want to say is this. Do you have jealousy in your heart? Do you have envy in your heart over someone else? What they have, who they are, their position, their possessions. That is an extremely dangerous sin. Extremely dangerous sin. And the root of it is a distrust and discontentment with God. Is God not enough for us? Has he not already done enough? Does he owe us anything besides eternal destruction for our sin? Does he owe us anything besides that? No. But what, he, what has he given us in Christ? He's, he's given us all things in Christ, the scripture says. Are we not now reigning with him as he sits on the throne? Will we not be raised from the dead when he returns? Will we not be with him when we die before that happens? Discontentment blinds us to what God has done for us. And we must repent of that and turn to Christ and and believe all these incredible promises for what he's done for us. Your life may be very difficult, and I'm sure it is. And I'm sure there are many sufferings that you go through. But if you are discontent, you do not understand God. You're not understanding what he's done for you. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying that you need to believe the gospel more and believe what he has done for you. Because if you have Jesus, you have enough. If you have him, you have enough. He is the fountain of living water, and if you have him, you do not need to thirst anymore, and you will not thirst if you are drinking from the well. And I would say this, too, when it comes to discontentment. God is the one who's writing the story of your life. So the sooner that you submit to the author's plan, the sooner you will find joy in it. He's the one who's writing the story. And the sooner you submit to his will, the sooner you will find joy. Because it is a great joy to know a good God in heaven is the one who is making the plan for your life if you are his child. And there, there's nothing more, there's nothing greater to take joy in than knowing that the God of the universe loves you and that you are his child. There's nothing better than that. So not only do we see their jealousy, which is behind their, their scheme here, but we see the heart of the king. The king loved to be worshipped. king loved to be worshipped. And we can make a mistake when we read this story in seeing that the only bad guys here were these other officials. The king was also the bad guy in the story. See, we don't, we don't see it that way because we're like, oh, he loved Daniel so much and he was duped into this. But he, he really wasn't. He really wasn't duped into this. Like, he loved the idea of, other, of, of everyone worshiping him. He loved that idea. That's why he, he agreed to it. And if any other Jew had disobeyed this law, you better believe that he would have thrown him into the lion's den. No question about it. He would have done it and not cared. But Daniel was different because God gave him favor in his heart, which we'll see in a minute. But the king loved to be worshipped. And there's, there's something behind that, and that is, that is Satan. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. And as, because we're so affected by the rationalist movement in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, and all that, we tend to belittle the spiritual realm and what goes on there. And to some degree, I understand that because much superstition has come from overemphasizing those things. And, of course, with the understanding of um, various medical things and whatnot, we know that not every crazy thing that happens is because of demon possession, right? But certainly the scriptures are clear that there is something that is called demon possession. There is something that's called influence by 
spiritual darkness, and we need to take that seriously and not take our culture's word for it as the final word, as we talked about before. So what we need to understand is behind all this, behind the evil government that is trying to get put itself on the pedestal of God, which is always what human governments apart from God have tried to do, ultimately, is become the Lord. They want the state to be the final say in all things, rather than being put in its proper place. Certainly the state plays a role. God created the government. It's a good thing when it's in its proper place. But apart from God, the human heart always seeks towards self-exaltation versus God-exaltation. And the king loved to be worshipped in this way because this is how Satan is worshipped. It's not through direct worship. It's through disobedience to God. Satan is perfectly happy with kings and emperors being worshipped and uh, ideologies of other people being worshipped and over against God. He's perfectly happy with that because his main goal is that that the people of God would be wiped out and that the worship of God would be wiped out. Because to him, that's a victory. Of course, because of what Christ has done, we know he has already lost and he is losing. But nonetheless, we need to remember that behind this, the real enemy isn't other humans. That's why we're to love other humans, right? Even though they are certainly guilty, we're also simultaneously, in some sense, victims of spiritual darkness. That does not at all negate our personal responsibility to obey God, right? However, it, it does help paint a bigger picture and a more full picture of really what's going on behind the scenes here, is there is always this war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. There's always this war going on, whether we pay attention to it or not, it's there. And behind all of this is an attempt to wipe out God's people. Do you, think it's, do you think it is any coincidence that the only people who would have been affected by this law, really, were Jews? Because they were the only ones who were monotheists, the only ones who believed in only one God? I don't think that's a coincidence. That's the enemy trying to plot through this pagan nation to wipe out God's people. And of course, God doesn't let that happen, which is incredible. But nonetheless, that's what's behind this. So to conclude this part, just keep in mind that the real enemy is, is the deceiver, the devil, and spiritual darkness. And that's what we're to pray against. And that's what we're fighting against. And that is why it is so important that we don't see Christianity as just some cutesy religion, some quaint religion, some nice thing that we do on Sundays where we get together and we sing some nice songs and try to be nicer to people. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not. Christianity is not about that at all. It's about complete overhaul of the human race into what God has originally designed and purposed. And now that has come to us through Christ. We know what we're supposed to be like because we can see Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate man, the true, the truest and most holy and perfect human because he's also God. He's the one we are to emulate and follow in his ways. And you see where this is what I this is why I said at the beginning Christianity is many things but it, it is it is a revolution. It's it's the most peaceful and incredible revolution there ever was and the most long lasting mind you. But that's what it is. So don't don't think that this is a light thing what we're doing here. We're worshiping the God of the universe. And we're coming together to hear his word so that we can go out and in our lives in the normal day-to-day -day lives be lights in the world and, and preach the light of this, of this Christ, of this gospel, this good news to the world. That's why we are here. So to wrap up here, we're going to look at the final section, which is God's sovereignty. And this is going to be a lot faster. There's, it's more of a bullet point thing here because there's, there's so much in this passage 
that I knew it would take hours for us to go through. But I want to be faithful to the text and, and cover what it says and say what it says. Because that is what we're supposed to do if we are teaching the word. So let's just go through this and we'll make some observations here about God's sovereignty. So we saw Daniel's humble disobedience, Leviathan's scheme, and then God's sovereignty over it all, his providence over it all. And I I think in this series, God's sovereignty has been a point in probably every sermon (laughs) so far, because it's really hard not to talk about it when you're in this book. It's incredible. But just to give a definition, if you're not familiar with what sovereignty means, it is it is authority, absolute authority in this case when we're applying it to God. So the government, humanity does not have absolute authority. God does. God has absolute authority. He is the only sovereign. And we also see his providence, which we oftentimes confuse the two. Sovereignty is his right over all things, his right and his authority over all things. Providence is him, is him actually carrying that out and, and ordering everything that happens through history. So within that, we see verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. This is him coming out of the lion's den. So what did God do? He shut the lion's mouth. That's what he did, which is crazy because it's not like the lions just got bored and decided to just relax for the night. They starved these lions so that they would immediately kill whoever was thrown in there. They starved them for days so that this would happen. So this is an incredible miracle that God would do this. Especially when you see it over against, not too long later, these evil men and their families are thrown in and they're devoured before they touch the ground. Which is terrifying. But you see God's, like, God controls the wind, the waves, all things. He's over it all, which is why we're to run to him in times of trouble. But notice in verse 22, this is really interesting here. We, we see in the text the reason why God saved, rescued Daniel. We see the reason why he did it. Because Daniel himself says it. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because... I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So the reason God rescued Daniel here is because of his blamelessness. Because he was humble towards God and no fault could be found in him. That did not mean he was perfect, of course. But that meant when you looked at his life, what you saw was a man that obeyed God. Of course, he had sin that he had to repent of. But when you looked at him, the overall picture that you got was that of integrity and humility and kindness and love and boldness, clearly, much boldness. We're not to confuse that with why God would save us from our sin, because clearly we are not saved by our works. Even Daniel, though he was a righteous man, had sin, and he was not worthy to be God's child, but God made him worthy through, through the future work that he would do in Christ, though that was in many ways a mystery to Daniel. But listen to this verse, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved, we're rescued from our sin in order that we would walk in good works. And as Protestants, I know that we can kind of have like an allergic reaction to when we say good works, because we're like, oh, we're not saved by good works. Yes, 100% true. But we are saved for good works. We are saved for good works, that we would obey the Lord. <clears throat> and I know I need to move quickly here, so I'm going to try to go through these bullet points a little faster. That's why they're called bullet points, really. Um, so notice in verse 24, very slow bullets, apparently. Um, need some more gunpowder in those. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke their bones in pieces. So aside from this being an absolute tragedy, there's also a lesson to be learned here, and that's that sin has consequences that we cannot control that affect other people. 
Now, of course, it wasn't God who threw them into the lion's den. It was the king. Though if it was God, God would have had the right to do that because he has the right to take life and to give it. He's the only one that has absolute right to do that. Um, But nonetheless, we need to remember, especially when it comes to jealousy, as I mentioned before, there's these certain sins that are so subtle, bitterness, jealousy, anger, hatred, that are so rooted and subtle in our hearts that we don't realize the damage that they're doing. But these are sins that destroy marriages, and they destroy families. They destroy people's faith. Because we're not content with what we have in God. And then that affects our families and our friends and splits churches and does all these horrible detrimental things. We need to be aware of those sins that are so subtle but are so awful. But let's, so far, a lot of this has been uh, very, a lot of it has been very serious and, and sober, uh, but there are some, la- the last two things that we'll talk about here in these last two bullet points are, are very encouraging. So notice what happens in verse 25 at the conclusion of this story. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. That, what we just read, that message was sent to the entire world at that time. That was sent to all of the provinces in the entire Persian Empire, which was the known world at the time for the most part. That's incredible. And it's because of what God did through Daniel's obedience. Of course, anytime we're in a story where, where it's about one person in the Bible that's not Jesus, we don't want to focus too much on that person. Because what we're supposed to see behind that is how Jesus is better. Jesus is a more faithful Daniel. Even though Daniel was amazing here, it's all supposed to point us to Christ and what he has done in his faithfulness in submitting to death on a cross when it was very unjust for that to happen. But you see what God does through our suffering and when we go through persecution, the gospel actually goes further and spreads further. When we endure suffering as a Christian, God gets glory for that. And his, his praise goes to the nations for that. That's why we all know stories of Christians who suffered and died. And that encourages our faith. And after times of intense persecution, there's always times of great growth in the church. That's always how it happens. And that's exactly what we see here. All the nations get a declaration of the one true God, written by the king, which is incredible. And then we see that, lastly, Daniel here, Daniel's been through a lot. He's been through a lot in just six chapters. And we get this nice kind of like happily ever after type ending of the, of the story, which says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, through which point he would have, he would have died after that. So he prospered during the rain. So God, God gave him a break. <laughs> he, gave, he gave him some rest. He gave him some peace. And what that should remind us of is sometimes that doesn't happen in our lives before we go to be with God. Sometimes we go through suffering our entire life. But God will give us peace and prosperity at the end with him. Not just when we die to go to be with him, Um, before he returns, which is going to be incredible, but especially when he comes back and raises all his people from the dead and we're with him on a new creation. So to conclude, obey God rather than man, but be humble when you do it. Be like Christ when you do it. Make sure that the scriptures are your authority behind everything you believe and think and all your practice and your mindset on all the hot topic cultural issues, whatever they are, of, of the day, 
Make sure you're going to the Bible to find the answer and not the culture because the culture will change. But God stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. And take heart knowing, like we read just there at the end, that though there is much suffering in this world and though God is doing a work here, one day it will all be made right when he returns. And we can, we can rest in that. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this time where we could get into your word. I know many things in here are heavy and some might be confusing. Um, but God, I ask that, that overall our hearts would find their allegiance in you and to your son, Jesus Christ, who is king, who is Lord of all the earth. There is none like him. Um, thank you for these people that you've gathered together, each one here, because you have planned for them to be here. God, I ask that there would be conviction of sin for those here who are living in sin and those who are not following you as, as their Lord. And I ask for those who are, who are suffering through persecution or trials of various kinds that they would be content knowing that they have you and they have all of eternity to dwell with you in peace. May they look forward to that hope, God. May they find rest for their souls in the true Sabbath that is Jesus. And God, as we come to the table today, may we find you and your Son in particular, Lord Jesus. Lord, may you be our all in all. May we trust in your, in your death and your resurrection for our forgiveness and know that in you, we are yours. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at